Good to be with you. I've heard a lot about this church over many years and pastoring in various places, and, uh, but I've uh, ever act- never actually got here. So it's good to be here with you as we continue in this series of Malachi. Two men were uh, talking about an upcoming wedding. And one of the men, uh, the engaged one, said to his friend, you know, it's odd, but now that I'm actually getting engaged, I'm feeling a little nervous. Maybe I'm feeling a little uh, uptight about getting married. And his friend responded with a straight face, well, I know what you're saying. It's only natural to be nervous. You see, marriage is a big commitment. Yeah, seven or eight years can be a long time. And sometimes we kind of chuckle about that, but the reality is that that's unfortunately what happens in many cases, isn't it? Divorce is um, not just a contemporary problem either, is it? It's something that's been going on for many, many years, and in fact, it existed back in Malachi's day. And unfortunately, divorce brings with it a whole lots of tragedy tragedy in the family, children, our culture, and our faith. And this was God's concern with his people of Israel. The fact that God had created Israel to be a distinct people on earth, his own, as the King James puts it, his own peculiar people, his very separated people. They were a special prize to him. And they had actually basically turned their back on him and they had broken faith. If you'd just turn with me back to your Bibles and uh, look at chapter 2 and verse 10, verse 11, and then down 15 and 16, we notice one recurring phrase that's used in the NIV and it's uh, in the EV it was rendered differently but very similar. It says that uh, your ancestors are being unfaithful to one another. In verse 11, He says, Judah has been unfaithful. And then again in uh, verse 14, he says, you have been unfaithful to her, referring to the Jewish wife. And then down again in verse 15, he says, that do not be unfaithful to your wife of your youth. And then again, he's used that same phrase, unfaithful again. And the word unfaithful there uh, can be rendered as broken faith. In fact, uh, in the Hebrew, it's rendered to act unfaithfully with respect to a prior agreement or covenant. And I think it's in the New King James, it renders that the word is often translated to act treacherously. So Malachi is not holding back when he says and he talks about this matter of, of marriage and intermarriage. And so the concern of this message is the people's unfaithfulness to each other in their relationships and beyond that, their relationship, their unfaithfulness to God's covenant. Now, I'm sure you agree with me for the Christian. Marriage is a sacred relationship. It's it's not a sacred one. And we need to understand it as such. And the world needs to see it as such. It needs to have that constant presentation of testimony of godly people living together in a godly union. So unfortunately, the world really doesn't know too much about that, does it? It has a different perspective on marriage, just like those 
two guys talking about commitment and saying seven or eight years could be a long time for marriage. We need to understand what God is saying for us as Christians. Malachi therefore brings to account Israel's unfaithfulness in relationships and to God's covenant. And so he, he brings what we would call an evidence. He brings evidence. And there are two charges that he lays. And the first charge that he lays is the charge of unfaithfulness. When he brings this charge of unfaithfulness, I want you to turn with me, if you will, to verse 11 again. And these are the words that Malachi says, Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship foreign, a foreign god. The first thing we notice, the first, I guess, evidence that, that Malachi brings to this charge of unfaithfulness is that it's proof of intermarriage. The abominable unfaithfulness that profaned Israel's holiness was intermarriage to, to pagans by marrying women who worship foreign gods. And we've seen this down through history, how that um, wherever there is a change in culture and faith, uh, that it can affect marriages as intermarriages, uh, intermarriage goes on and it changes a whole a raft of things within culture. And the Jews, bearing in mind, the Jews were supposed to marry within their own nation and failure to do so was an act of unfaithfulness to themselves as well as to their God. But in Malachi's day, the people had taken their marriage very loosely and very lightly and they had no problem in marrying unbelievers and getting divorces so the failure to view marriage as sacred produced a wrong attitude we need to understand this that stripped listen stripped of a spiritual context marriage is nothing more than a civil contract if you take the spiritual side of it out Sometimes they last and sometimes they don't last. Israel had broken faith with one another in marriage and marrying an unbeliever was forbidden by the law of God. And yet they had no problem showing up to worship at the temple in spite of just that. I mean, it was, a, it was the epitome of hypocrisy. What they believed, listen to this, what they believed and how they behaved didn't always match up. What they had really done is they had compartmentalized their lives. They had compartmentalized their spirituality. And the reality of it all was this, simply this, people, that they had a heart problem. Their heart wasn't after God. Their heart wasn't following God closely. And so they had a major heart problem. Tragically, in the 21st century, uh, somewhere on the line there was this thin edge of the wedge, if you will, that's crept into society. And, you know, marriage has been regarded as something that can be very lightly treated. And even, unfortunately, in the Christian church. You know, I would be a rich man standing here before you today as a pastor and in full-time Christian work for over 50 years and pastoring many churches. I would be a rich man for every time particularly if I had a young girl come up to me from the congregation. And you, you got the sense 
of what they were about to say next. And usually it would be something like, hey, Alan, um, just want to let you know, I've met this wonderful guy. He's just Mr. Dreamboat. I mean, he's all that I ever wanted and all that I had ever hoped for. And you know the next word that I know that's coming? Have a guess. Can anybody? It's but. Yes. You got it in one. But. But he's not a Christian. And, uh, and so you sit down and you try to talk to them from the scriptures and you read scriptures like, do not be yoked together with unbelievers for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common or what fellowship can light have with darkness? And, you know, it's just... And you try to explain to them because usually, listen, usually what happens is this. They will say, look, once we're married, then I'll bring him to the Lord. I mean, we've heard this probably many times before. And, and you know, and I've used the illustration, and that would be this, that um, if you've got your proposed boyfriend or proposed fiancé and got him to stood on a table and you stood down on the floor, what would be easier for you to pull him down or him to pull you up? Oh, it would be a lot easier for him, for me to pull him down, I guess. And the illustration is very much the same when it comes to these relationships where we think that we can do the right thing, we think that we're going to be strong, but unfortunately, it doesn't happen that way. And tragically, in many instances, these marriages uh, end up happening and uh, consequently there's a lot of sadness. Sometimes they work, but not like I, I had a, 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 young, a lady who, when I was pastoring in New Zealand, she rang me up one day, lovely family, two girls, early teens, and I went to the door and, uh, at their request and uh, when she opened the door she just burst into tears. And uh, I sat down with her and we talked and she proceeded to tell me, she said, you know, Alan, I have something that's been on my heart that's been tearing me apart inside for years. And she said, Roger, that was her husband, she said, I married Roger in disobedience to the word of God. And she said, here I am a Christian, but he at this point in time is not a Christian. And she said, it's just been gnawing away at me for years now, she said, I've just got to come to a place of acknowledging this and I need, I need to repent of that. I need to ask God to forgive me. And if he would be gracious in allowing Roger to come to know the Lord. And that lady was a broken person. Praise the Lord, God in his mercy. Um, we had the joy of leading him to the Lord sometime later. But the heartache that comes when we disobey God's word, it's not may not be just in this matter of marriage. It could be in a whole other raft of things in our lives. When we disobey the word of God, we know that we have the consequences that we need to look at. I just need to say that God's not, a, and I say this to a lot of younger people who think about getting married, God is not a killjoy. Not at all. I mean, he's interested in just the opposite. He's interested in our happiness. He's interested in our protection. He's interested in our well-being. That such a sacred union should be just that. And so let's look at verse 12 now and the, the consequence of this sin. You notice the prophet invoked a curse 
on any Jew who committed or would commit a sin of marrying a pagan. Listen to what he says. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob. It's rather a harsh statement. That really simply meant was this, that this man would die or his line would, not, would be cut off and that he'd have no descendants in Israel. But look at the last clause in this verse 12, if you will. And he says this, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. And that really emphasizes again the hypocrisy and the insensitive attitude of those who committed this sin of intermarrying. It's quite amazing that despite the abomination as such a person committed or was thinking about committing, they they didn't realize what was going on or what was going to happen. It seemed like almost they had this attitude, look, uh, God, if I come to church and I do the right things, maybe you'll blink at this thing that I've done. Maybe you'll, you know, you'll uh, just kind of cast a blind eye to that. And that wasn't going to happen. And so the first proof was the consequence of this whole thing. The second proof outside intermarrying was this matter of divorce in verse 13. And another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altars with tears and weep and wail because he no longer looks with favour on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you notice here, just before we go any further, that Malachi reverses the order of the sin consequence structure as he did under this matter of illegal and intermarriage, and he now gives the consequence first, and then he states the sin. So Malachi said to some of the people that you flood the Lord's altar with tears, and he was probably referring to the men who, after divorcing their Israelite wives to marry pagans, found that the Lord no longer received their offerings. They no longer had God's favour on their life. You see, God did just not want their attendance at the temple, nor their offerings and worship, if they were unwilling to take seriously their marriage vows. And, you know, we need to address that ourselves. You know, I've been married now this year for 57 years, and it seems like two or three lifetimes in a good sense. <laughs> I just need to correct that. But I've seen a lot of marriages over the years where, you know, there's been this relationship where um, people just don't take their relationship very seriously before the Lord. The same is true today, that we cannot just show up to church and compartmentalise our lives in a way and we show up to church and cry out to God to forgive us. There must be a real substance, people. Listen, watch this. There must be a real substance in the way we live outside the church, mustn't there? There's got to be a, a substance. There's got to be some reality about the way we live. I guess we could put it this way. It is critical that our theology has legs on it. It's critical that our theology has legs on it. In other words, that we do put it out in shoe leather, that we live the life that we profess. It's very easy in an environment, in a church environment, for us to agree theologically, to agree with the tenets of faith and to agree the way we practice our faith 
And yet it's another thing entirely when I go out in the marketplace on Monday morning and I'm placed in, an, in, a, in a position where I'm probably the only Christian or in an environment where I need to make a stand on issues. And so these people in Malachi's day were treating God's law and God's standards very loosely. So the consequences of their actions, of their divorce, was one that the God would not be receiving their offerings and he wouldn't be looking at, with favour upon them anymore. But then he goes in verses 14 through to 16 and he describes the sin. Malachi stresses in verse 14 that the Israelites' spiritual dullness and insensitivity, amazingly they couldn't understand what the problem was. And how do we know that? Just look at those first three words in verse 14. You ask, why? I mean, it was like they were deaf and dumb and, and couldn't see. You know, God, Malachi said, you ask, why? Don't you understand what you've done, what you're doing? And he had to spell it out for them. And the, and the Lord, we're told in this passage, was acting as the witness between them. Such a man and his wife with whom he had been unfaithful or who had broken faith, that is, whom he had divorced. And the casualness that Israel toward marriage union had created a sloppy spirituality. And look, bear in mind, whenever we take and we treat spiritual things loosely and we treat the word of God loosely, then there's no doubt about it that we are going to become as it were, sloppy in our own spiritual life, we'll begin to compromise and allow things to take a place in our lives that we never thought we would let happen. God was not responding to their prayers until they took him more seriously. Peter addressed this, in fact, over in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. If you've got your Bibles, you wish to turn there, but I'm just going to read it to you. And these are the things that Peter said. He says, Husbands... In the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. You know, I think it's very clear in this passage that Peter was saying that their prayers were hindered when they as husbands did not treat their wives properly. In fact, if you notice in verse 14 and in the, in the NIV, God calls the wife a partner and not a possession, not property. He's talking about a lifetime partner. And unfortunately, tragically, we know with, with domestic violence these days that people, men particularly, can treat women however they think they want. They're not property. They're not possessions. They're partners. That's what Malachi says. This is your lifelong partner. It speaks and gives us a picture of permanence. And then in verse uh, 16, he continues on. You know, Henry Ford, by the way, the founder of the Ford Motor Company, when asked for advice on his 50th wedding anniversary for his rule on marital bliss and longevity, you know how he replied? He says, just the same as in the automobile business. Stick to the one model. And I think that's good advice. Stick to the one model. Don't change models. You see, 
We're told in verse 16 again that Malachi uses strong language to emphasize um, just God's displeasure with divorce. In the New King James Version, he describes it this way in verse 16, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. I want you to notice something, people, and that is, notice God did not say that he hated divorced people, but he hated divorce because he knew the consequences that that could bring. God understands the pain that's inflicted on a person, a family, a culture, when divorce takes place. I read of a woman just a, <laughs> recently, and take it as you will, but she came to the lawyer and she said, you know, I want to get a divorce. I really hate my husband and I want to hurt him. Give me some advice. In addition to wanting to get gold and give him the shaft, she was wondering about some other way that she might be able to, I guess, do him in. And so the attorneys looked at her and he said, look, you're going to divorce the guy anyway. So for three months, don't criticise him. Speak only well of him. Build him up. Every time he does something nice, commend him for it. Tell him what a great guy he is and do that for three months. After he thinks that he has your confidence and love, hit him with the news and that will hurt even more. The woman thought, well, I can't go wrong with this, can I? I'm divorcing the guy anyway, so why should I speak badly about him? So I'm going to speak only well of him. So she complimented her husband for everything that he did. For three months, she told him what a great man he was. And you know what happened after those three months expired to that relationship? They went on a second honeymoon because they had changed their whole attitudes to each other, she to her husband particularly. And so that was the charge of unfaithfulness that Malachi brought to these people from Israel. But now he concludes in these last two verses with the charge to faithfulness, from the charge of unfaithfulness to the charge of faithfulness. In verses 15 and 16, we notice one phrase that's repeated and God challenges them and he uses these words. He says, so be, so be on your guard and do not be unfaithful or do not break faith. The Israelites were not to break faith with one another by divorcing their Jewish wives or intermarrying with pagans. And such actions profaned the covenant promise God gave to Israel. And by guarding their spirits, they would be acting in accordance with God's purposes. If they wanted their prayers answered, Malachi was basically saying if they wanted their prayers answered, they would have to do more than just weep at the altar in prayer. They would have to return home and live out a godly commitment and lifestyle in their marriages. You see, God's reaction to them was connected, listen, with their reaction to their spouse. And I believe that that's still true today, that God still sees it that way today. So let me ask you this question if I can. How's your prayer life? And how's your married life? 
because there may be more of a connection between those two items than we think. If you look back at 1 Peter 3, 7, he says that your prayers will, be not, will not be answered if you dishonour your partner. So how is your prayer life and how is your marriage life? Are you faithful to your spouse? And I believe it's true to say that those we partner are the kind of people we become like more and more each day. We are set apart from the world so that we'll be different from the world. That, we'll be, that we might be a, a testimony, if you will, to show the world a better way to live. And that's lived out in shoe leather as we go out into our workaday world every day. You see, our vertical relationship with God is affected by our horizontal, our horizontal relationships with each other. Faithfulness in a married life is a wonderful testimony to a broken world, isn't it? For Christian people living and setting up a family and honouring God is a testimony that I think we don't sometimes take very seriously. In fact, I just read a, a really moving story of a nurse who shared this, this story on faithfulness. And I finish on this. She says, it was a busy morning approximately 8.30 a.m. when an elderly gentleman in his 80s arrived to have stitches removed from his thumb. He stated that he was in a hurry and as he had to have the stitches removed from his thumb, he stated that he was in a hurry as he had an appointment at 9 a.m. So I took his vital signs and had him take a seat and knowing it would be over an hour before someone would be able to see him. I saw him looking at his watch and decided since I really wasn't busy with another patient, I would evaluate his wound. So on exam, she said, it was well healed. And so I talked to one of the doctors, got the needed supplies to remove the, su to remove the sutures and redress his wound. While taking care of his wound, we began to engage in conversation. I asked him, do you have a, a doctor's appointment here this morning because you're in s such a hurry? And the gentleman told me no. He said that he needed to go to the nursing home to eat breakfast with his wife. I then inquired as to her health and he told me that she had been there for a while and that she was a victim of Alzheimer's disease. As we talked and I finished dressing the wound, I asked if she would be worried if he was a bit late. And he replied that she no longer knew who he was, that she had not recognised him for five years. I was surprised, the nurse said, and I asked him, so you still go every morning even though she doesn't know who you are? And his amazing reply was this, and he's patted the nurse's hand and smiled to her and said, she doesn't know me, but I still know who she is. And that's faithfulness. And that's the kind of marriage that God is looking for. Let's bow in prayer. Our gracious and our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that as we look into your word, that it has instructions for us how to live and how to honour you.
and that our lives would be lives that are blessed by you and that we'll know your peace and your presence in our lives as we seek to honour you and to honour your word. And so, Father, as we consider our marriages, those of us who are married, I pray for your blessing on each married couple here this morning and that they might know your presence and that they might be growing a grace with you and with each other. And Lord, we'll be very careful to give you all the praise and all the glory, not only for your salvation, but for the partners that you've given us in this life to be witnesses for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.